because you, ne- you never know. Uh, but uh, when we pray in a minute, let's uh, remember them as they trudge along in uh, something I don't want to have ever do myself, but I more power to them. Yeah, Acts uh, twenty-one thirty-six. Uh, we're going to be seeing the kind of the uh, travails and the uh, triumphs and the travels of, of the Apostle Paul in the rest of this book. As we come to chapter 21, Lori, we're entering the final section. It's a fairly large section. But it's the last section, Katie, of this book, and it climaxes in the city of Rome. Uh, we're going to see Paul as uh, a prisoner under legal charges going from Jerusalem, the capital of Judaism, back to where he was just a month or so before, Caesarea, which was the Roman capital of the region, and ultimately he's going to go to Rome. He's going to go to Rome, the capital of the, the Roman Empire, and uh, he's going to preach so well that in one of the books he writes during his two years house arrest, he says the whole Praetorian Guard, the whole, the whole secret service is hearing about the gospel in part because of his imprisonment there. And we're going to see that a guy like Paul uh, he gets his wings clipped. He did not sign up. If this had been a, an elective course, he would not have signed up to take five years off the road, although he does travel, but he's under charges because he loved his life as a missionary. But we're going to see Paul kind of keeps his cool and keeps the faith, and we're going to see some principles from his attitude as he goes from Jerusalem all the way to the capital of the civic world, Rome, in the next several chapters as we finish the book of Acts. But uh, before we dive in this morning, let's uh, pray that the Spirit of God who inspired this text and has providentially preserved it might open our hearts to hear and believe and to apply this as truth, not just information. And we also want to pray for our troops, our peace officers, our firefighters, and we want to pray for those who are running or walking in the Oklahoma City races today. So... uh, Zane Britton, if you would uh, pray for all of us in that direction, okay? My man, Zane. Yeah, we're going to look at uh, a fairly large section tonight, or this, this evening, uh, this morning. We're going to see Paul keeping the faith and love in a hurricane of hate. He's going to be living in the eye of the hurricane. That's one of the analogies I like to use for this kind of thing. Uh, let's look at our context. Go back a couple of verses to chapter... Um, 21 verse 30. Then all the city of Jerusalem was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors to the temple were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, so they grabbed him, they bound him, they're stopping him, probably getting some rocks to throw at him. And they couldn't do such things in the temple because that is a sacred place. You cannot murder people inside the temple precincts. You've got to pull them outside of it, right? So there is a lot of evil to misdirected religion. Always has been, always will be. Uh, They dragged him out of the temple, shut the doors while they were in the process of literally kicking, stopping, and possibly stoning him to death. A report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort. The Romans had occupied the region for about 100 years. They didn't like uh, gang warfare in the middle of uh, Jerusalem, so that's not a good thing for them. They want peace and tranquility, and everybody pay their taxes. Uh, so he heard all of Jerusalem was in confusion. So at once he, the Roman commander, 
took along some soldiers and centurions and set and ran down to the mob scene where they're beating up Paul. And when they, the mob, the murderers, attempted murderers, saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So we got some progress. That's good. Verse 33, then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him, Paul, to be bound with two chains. He's assuming he's guilty till proven innocent. And he must have done something to get all these people mad at him, right? So uh, he's going to try to figure out why. And he began asking the crowd, you know, just an unbiased source of information, who he was, who this guy they'd been beaten up was, and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing, one lie about Paul, somebody else saying something else. And when the Roman commander couldn't find the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him, that is Paul, to be brought into the barracks away from the maddening crowd. When he got to the stairs leading up to the uh, the barracks on the Antonia Fortress, uh, he was being carried by soldiers, Paul was, because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting, away with him, and that means off with your head kind of thing. Kill him, we don't want him, we won't have him. So our context is Paul has been attacked by a mob in Jerusalem because they've heard a rumor that he's against the law of God and therefore repudiates the word of God, and they can't tolerate that. And this is a, a drawing of the first century temple as would have existed at this point. And what we've got here is Paul has come in this area here to worship, and the bystanders saw him and said, this is a bad guy, this is the guy we've heard about who actually does stuff like bring Gentiles into this area, which he had not done, of course. Uh, we saw that last week. But they pull him out, shut the gates, and start beating him up to kill him. Meanwhile, the Roman detachment that's directly a- attached to the temple for such occasions like this to keep the peace, uh, they come down and they take care of the situation. And they are actually arresting him for questioning, but uh, he's, in effect, being rescued from, from murder. And that's always a good thing. So that's our context. Now, Let's look at the first phase of the story as we continue today. Look at verse 37 and through 39. After being rescued, Paul asked permission to speak to the very people who had just tried to kill him. And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks up the steps and away from the crowd, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he, the commander, and by the way, we know this commander's name was Claudius Lysias. Because in chapter 23, probably next week, we're going to see a letter he writes, and he addresses it by that name. Uh, the, the word for commander literally means a leader of a thousand, just like centurion means leader of a hundred. We tend to think that centurions are officers. They're not. They're non-commissioned officers. They'd be like sergeants. This guy, um, Claudius Lysias, would have been like a full colonel. Okay, So he's a, a high-ranking officer. Uh, officer in the Roman army, no doubt. So as they're going up the barrack, the stairs of the barracks and get, get, going to get away, Paul says, can I, can I ask you something? Can I tell, tell you something? And he's speaking in Greek, because Greek was the language all the educated people knew. Aramaic was the language most Palestinians knew, because they grew up with it. And Hebrew is the language of the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. So those languages uh, play a part in all this, and Paul obviously is multilingual. Uh, and notice the commander, the colonel shot, shoots back at him. You know Greek? 
We thought you were just kind of an uneducated bad guy, a terrorist. You managed not only to be a threat to us, you've actually threatened these Jewish folks too. And so verse 38 continues. The colonel says, well then, you're not the Egyptian who back in just a couple years before, in 54 A.D., we're in 57 A.D., June of 57, according to Honer's chronology, these events take place. But apparently the Roman army officer thought this was a return of a guy just called the assassin for short. We don't know his personal name, but we know based on Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, that in 54 A.D., that this Egyptian Jewish guy had organized a group of several thousand terrorists. Uh, they had assembled on the Mount of Olives just to the east of Jerusalem, and they were planning to invade the city in 54 and kick the Romans out and shut the temple down as it was being run by people that the Egyptian thought was corrupt. And, of course, he was right. They were corrupt, but he had violence in his mind. And so what happened is the Greek, or the, excuse me, the Roman governor, Felix, I always think Felix the cat, but his name was Felix, who's sitting in the seat of Pontius Pilate, this is 57 AD, he's the guy that they're going to take to, to Caesarea to have a hearing before Paul um, in the next week or two. But anyway, according to secular history, this governor Felix uh, eliminated most of the army, or most of the army on the Mount of Olives, but the Egyptian the assassin and a few of his leaders, henchmen, escaped. It's always the leaders that get away, right? Um, Osama bin Laden, he was happy to send people in suicide missions, but he didn't go on any himself. But yeah, that's what happened. So uh, this guy, this Egyptian terrorist, he's been on the top ten wanted list of the Romans and the Jews for three years because the Jews realize he's uh, rejecting their religion as they know it, as it's operated, and the Romans definitely know that the assassin was somebody very much vested in wanting to kill as many Roman occupying forces as possible. So the uh, commander is just, for some reason, assumed this must be this guy. So when he hears that Paul is bright enough and educated enough to know Greek, he says to Paul, you're not the, the Egyptian terrorist who three years ago stirred up a revolt and let 4,000 men of the assassins uh, out into the wilderness. But Paul said, no, that's not who I am. I'm a Jew. I'm of Tarsus and Cilicia, uh, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. Now, at this point, Tom, Paul's been beaten up, and I'm sure his wounds are less than superficial. I'm sure they're fairly serious. Anybody else would probably say, hey, take me to, take me to the ER, or whatever, whatever Tyler just said, something like that. That was her attempt to say, take me to the ER. But Paul says, let me speak to my people. I want to speak to my people about their real problem. I haven't got problems, but they got a spiritual problem. I want to talk to them about the Savior. So you see Paul's love for his countrymen and his just dogged determination to fulfill his mission, which isn't to promote his career. Christian ministry isn't about Christian ministers. We James and I greatly appreciate and look forward to the moving date on the calendar that we call Pastor Appreciation Day around here. We look forward to it. Um, and it comes every year, you know. It's incredible. But uh, really, I've always felt like the pastor, we exist to promote the church and the gospel, not the other way around. So 
Now you see that in Paul here. He's more interested in his commission to preach the gospel to these uh, crowds that are wanting to kill him than to get out of harm's way. Look at verse 40, the last verse of this chapter, verse 21. Paul begins to share his testimony with the crowd. Now he gets interrupted, Bobby. He doesn't get very far, really. But I'm sure what he's essentially trying to do is what he always does when he speaks to groups of unbelievers. We've got a snapshot of that at the synagogue in Antioch in chapter 13 of Acts. But I think he's just trying to say, look, folks, Judaism correctly understood leads and climaxes in the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ, who's also the Savior of the world. That's what he wants to say to them, I'm quite sure, even though he doesn't get far enough for us to know for certain. Look at first, uh, that last verse in chapter 21 through 22-5. We're going to see him talk about his background in Judaism. He's not anti-Jewish. He's not an anti-Semite. He's not even against the law, but he has a New Testament perspective on the law of the Old Testament. Look at verse 40. When he, the colonel, had given him, Paul, permission not to go up those steps, and what we know is wherever the uh, the the riot broke out, whether it was right outside the doors of the temple or moved around somewhere, the Romans take control of the situation and they take Paul up a set of steps that would have led to the barracks and their fortress attached to the temple. So that's that was the plan. But Paul's saying, wow, what anybody else would see as a means to escape, Paul sees as a platform he can use because the acoustics are great now. So let's let's go with it, okay? Let's go for it. you got to love this guy. And so look what he says. Brethren and fathers. I think that's a respectful address at an ethnic level, and also the fathers are the older gentlemen in the crowd. I'm not sure how old you have to be to be old, but it's at least one day older than I am. That's for sure. And this, his terminology is here. It's interesting. Here my defense, which I now offer to you, and he's going to talk about his background. Apologia is the Greek word that Paul uttered uh, in the sense he uses Hebrew here, but uh, Luke writes it in Greek. And it means not to apologize, but to defend or to confirm something. And so he's going to do apologetics. He doesn't just make a presupposition. Hey, if God didn't exist, none of this would be happening. Uh, Obviously, they already know that. What he's going to do is give evidence to validate the fact he's not the bad guy they think they are, and I'm quite sure he's wanting to say, Judaism, correct, understood, climaxes with Jesus Christ. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, hear my apologia, which I now offer to you. And when they heard he was addressing them in the Hebrew, they became even more quiet, and he said, I am a Jew, proud of it, born in Tarsus, but brought up in this city. What city are they sitting in? Jerusalem. We're standing in. Educated under Gamaliel, very famous rabbinical teacher, contemporary of that time, strictly according to the law. I'm not against the law. I, I know as much or more about the law than you do. I care about it just as much or more than you do. Being zealous for God, just as you all also are today. And not only that, not only was I pro-Jewish, pro-Old Covenant, pro-Old Testament law, I was very much against the Christian church. I was all about persecuting and stamping out this um, new movement that he refers to as the way. The title Christianity comes later, although the Antioch church first 
or in the city of Antioch, they first received the term Christians by enemies. But he says, I persecuted this way, this Christianity, what you don't like, to the death, binding and putting both men and women, ERA, you know, ERA, you know, men or women, boys and girls, doesn't matter, into prison. Uh, as also the high priest and the council, we're going to see Paul speaking to these people in this passage of the elders, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, even the, the existing Supreme Court, they know, they know me, they know of me, I used to work for them. From them, I also had received letters to the brethren and started off from Jerusalem to Damascus back in chapter 9 in order to bring even those who were there. You can't, you can run, but you can't hide from us. We're going to find you even if you're in Damascus and if you're a professing believer in Christ, we're going to catch you and do bad things to you. So even those who were there to Jerusalem, bring them back to Jerusalem to be prisoners, to be punished. But so that's his conversion in a very short, uh, short take. I should say his background in Judaism leading up to his conversion. Now look at verse 6 and following. Look at his conversion. But it happened that I, as I was on the road to Damascus, going on this business trip from Jerusalem to Damascus, because we got fresh intel, fresh intelligence, we got living, breathing Christians up there from a Jewish background, from a Jerusalem background, who've been trying to get away from the persecution. We're going to go find them to make an example of them. So, as I'm on that business trip, just outside the city, approaching Damascus about noontime, high noon, everything is as bright as it's going to get, a very bright light, a brighter light than sunlight at noon, suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. That was a mega bright light. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you? <laughs> Let me know and he'll stop, you know. Uh, he's not expecting Jesus Christ. He didn't believe in the resurrection. He believed the sob story that the disciples had stolen the body, as Matthew 28 explains. That was the alibi. That was the excuse. Uh, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus. I'm Yeshua. I'm God's Savior, the Nazarene, whom you're persecuting. You persecute my body, the church. You persecute me. And those who are with me, he's got an entourage of people working under him to help bring the prisoners back from Damascus to Jerusalem. And those who were with me saw the light. Hey, Steve, the fact that the other people in the group experienced some of Paul's experience means this isn't something he just subjectively perceived in his head. Now, God can work just in your head. But this isn't just a subjective thing that he experienced. This is an objective revelation of Jesus, partial for the onlookers, but complete for Paul. Those who were with me saw the light brighter than the noonday sun in the Near East. That's pretty bright, uh, to be sure. But they didn't understand the voice. There's actually some nuances in the grammar that help with this. Paul saw the light, and he saw Jesus, and he heard Jesus. The folks with him see the light as a thing, and they hear a sound, but they can't make it out as intelligible speech. That's what's happening, but this is outside of Paul's head. It's not just a subjective thing or a hallucination or something like that, like some people want to explain away. Keep going. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said, get up, go into Damascus, you're on the outskirts anyway, and there you will be told of all that's been appointed for you to do. You'd think, why didn't Paul just give him an out? I mean, why didn't God just give him an outline right there? I mean, what's it going to hurt? God works in mysterious ways. God has his plan. Uh, we don't always keep our plans, but his always work out. And 
right now, I don't want to tell you exactly what your commission is. You just get into town and we'll start processing when you get to town. But since I could not see, blinded by the light, uh, wasn't that a Jackson Brown song there, uh, James? Is that the first pop culture thing from the 60s you don't know about? Yeah. I, I think it was Jackson Brown, but I could be wrong. In fact, that's so important. No, we it doesn't matter. But since I could not see, he temporarily lost his sight because of the brightness of the light. Uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, I grew up in Opelanga, Opelanga, Florida, Miami, Florida, and I only had one sister at the time because the other two hadn't come yet. And during the, uh, my dad was working in North Carolina. So during the Cuban Missile Crisis, we got on a Greyhound bus in Miami and went to North Carolina and we finished the last two and a half months of the fall semester there. And, uh, the, the first week we were there, we're the new kids, so nobody knows us, you know. And it was going to be a solar eclipse, like at noon one day. Um, and the school was going nuts about it, and the, you know, the kids were all excited about it. And they taught us to make a, you know, car, get a cardboard box and put a hole in it, put a sheet of paper so it'd be white instead of brown, uh, so you can kind of face away from the eclipse, have the light come through it, and your theory, you're going to see, you know, some, some reasonable facsimile of it. But they warned us like 10,000 times, do not look at the solar eclipse. Do not. Don't look at the solar eclipse under any circumstances. I mean, kiss a rattlesnake, but don't look at the solar eclipse. <laughs> they scared us spitless. But anyway, I can uh, and my sister, on the way home that day, she's in the back of the car, and about halfway, she's very quiet, which is unusual, and she goes, uh, hey, Mom, I know a little girl who looked at the eclipse. Will she go blind? <laughs> and I think I'm in fourth grade, and I thought, there ain't no little girl. She's she's obviously a little girl. I, I wonder if mom's smart enough to know that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you can do real damage you know, by looking at the sun. But this turns out to be temporary. But this was an objective, real thing outside his head, not just an allegorical thing that happened. And so, boom, he can't see. Uh, he's in trouble. So, if I can find where I am, otherwise I'm going to be in trouble, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, verse 11. But since I could not see in the aftermath of the revelation of Christ to him on the road, uh, because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came to Damascus. Steve, the irony that Paul had come to bind people and take them to their execution probably, and now he's, after seeing Christ, is having to subject himself to somebody else holding his hand and walk him into town. Uh, is not, not, shouldn't be missed. You know, God does work in interesting ways to get our attention, even after we come to faith. But because I couldn't see, I had to be led into town. And a certain believer from a Jewish background, Ananias, who lived in Damascus, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well-spoken there by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing near to me, said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked at him. And then he then he said, The God of our fathers, who has appointed you to know his will. You know what? One reason, Blanche, God didn't tell Paul immediately after his conversion on the road what the deal was, because Ananias needed to know. Because Ananias was going to try to convince the church in Damascus that something radically different about this guy. He's been saved, sealed, and delivered, 
and he's not going to try to kill us anymore. He's not going to try to arrest us anymore. That's good to know, Medina, that he's not a bad guy. He's actually a good guy. He's one of the brethren now. So Ananias needed this. The church in the area, in fact, all the way down to Jerusalem, needed to know this for sure. So he kind of interacts with Paul. He's going to confirm that he's been confirmed, you know. Uh, Brother Saul, receive your sight. There's a miracle. Receives his sight. And I looked that up at him. And he said, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appointed you to know his will, and now you know it, to see the righteous one, the Savior. He lived a perfect life, died for all of Bailey's sins, like everything that could keep you out of heaven, Jesus paid for in your place as your Savior, rose again and through faith in him. All that is forgiven and you're given eternal life. Uh, and to hear an order, utterance, this utterance from his mouth, um, as well as because other ones and subsequent ones. Uh, for you will be a witness for him. This is kind of uh, his call to present Christ now to all men, Jew and Gentile. And that word means people. That's Nicole as much as Chris. Of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you delay? I'm going to translate that something like this using the past participle. Having called on his name, when did Paul call on Jesus' name and get saved? I would say on the road after he realizes who Jesus is. That's when he gets saved, right? Having called on his name in faith, uh, invisible but real regeneration, now for your testimony, for the church's sake, and for all Christianity's sake, get up publicly and identify with Christ by submitting to water baptism, which is a symbol of the washing away your sins, just like the bath of salvation is. And that's important because he, this guy had massive sins. I mean, this guy was uh, complicit with many murders and set a lot of people up to die for the Christian faith. And he never quite got over that he actually was doing that for a living. As you read even his last couple letters, Paul doesn't ever get past the amazing grace of God that saved him. Look at verse 17. And it happened when I returned to Jerusalem... And he's talking to the crowd now in Jerusalem. So he's saying, you know, right in this very city, when I came from Damascus after my conversion back to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, make haste, don't wait around, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Isn't that ironic? He's talking to a crowd in Jerusalem and just tried to kill him and said, right after my conversion, I came here, and I was told by divine revelation, get out of town. Now's not the time to share. They're going to reject what, you, what you're going to say. And as we see uh, many years later, it hadn't changed all that much. Uh, but that's a lot of irony there, right? It's pretty crazy. So get up, get out, uh, because it's not going to work out well for you. Uh, you know, what you're seeing here basically is, uh, let me keep going. I'm going to stop at verse 20, I guess. I lost my place, 21. Uh, and I said, oh Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. I mean, uh, clearly they know that I'm you know, a good guy here in Jerusalem because I was a, a five-star Jew and an Old Testament Jew and proud of it and a Pharisee, and now I'm a believer, and they're certainly going to realize that Christianity climaxes in Christ, right? Everybody's going to get that as soon as they hear it, right? Well, no. A lot of them won't believe. In fact, most of them won't believe. And a lot of them will vilify you for believing it. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, when did that happen? When was Stephen 
uh, stoned. Well, remember our way to remember the book. Jesus ascends to heaven, chapter 1, established by the New Testament church, chapter 2, salvation of a blame, 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 salvation of a lame beggar, uh, Peter and John, in chapter 3, just outside that temple door they just shut, you know, earlier. Unleashing a persecution against the church in Jerusalem, sin in the church, impact the deacons, and what happens in chapter 7? Yeah. Stephen's stoned to death, and Paul's going back to that, and he's, he's saying, Lord, they, they know I'm, I'm a full-star Jew, and I persecuted the church, even when the blood of your witness Stephen, the first Christian martyr in Jerusalem, uh, was being shed, I also was standing by with approval. I mean, I was, you know, too, uh, uh, important to actually throw the rocks, but I was watching the cloaks and urging them on, letting the average people kill and murder this guy, watching out for the cloaks of those who were slaying him. Boom. And he said to me, go. This is the voice of Christ to Paul. Just go. Get out of Jerusalem. I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So as I like to say, you know, God's will is not just a what, it's also what. It's a, a, a when and a how. And it's very important we understand that, otherwise we're going to be very disappointed a lot of times because we have an unrealistic, unbiblical conception of the way God works. But I would also say, you know, what, what's he doing here? Trevor, what Paul's doing here is sharing his story. He's talking about his background, his conversion, and I'm sure his third and final point is, let me tell you how Christ completes Judaism. But they're going to stop him in his tracks right there. And here's the deal. It's strange but true to us, but the good news, the gospel is often seen as a gross nuisance to other people. And I, I still never get over that. Uh, and e- even in some of the situations where I get to teach uh, outside of Cameron, you know, you, you get opportunity to share the gospel. It's like the greatest thing ever. Uh, and some people could care less. It looks like you're trying to, you know, trying to sell them a, Insurance policy they don't need and don't want. I mean, it's just, it's pitiful. But you realize God calls the elect. You know, God knows who's going to come. God works to draw them to himself. But I mean, uh, unless the Spirit draws you, it's not going to happen. The good news is often seen as a gross nuisance. And you know, I'm not a historian, but I got, I got a theory about American history. I think the first phase of American history, everybody, including non-Christians, thought Christianity and Christian morals were ideal. And kind of assumed the country would operate within that frame. Even the founding fathers had girlfriends and had babies with slaves and whatever they did. At least they were discreet. And they weren't proud of it. And they never held that up as a standard. Everybody saw Christianity as the ideal whether they believed it or not. That's phase one. Phase two was go to the church of your choice. Religion is good. All religions are good. They're all going up the same mountain, just different paths. And Christianity probably the best for Christians, but there's a lot of good stuff in religions. So don't worry about it. But be religious. Americans must be religious. Go thou out and be religious. And then, and by the way, Stephen Prothero, who teaches at Boston University, not Boston College, the Roman Catholic School, but the liberal liberal aids, liberal aids, liberal arts, <laughs> liberal arts uh, university, which is very famous. Uh, he wrote a book called God is Not One. He calls himself a, a confused Episcopalian. He's not an evangelical Christian. And he says, they're not all going up the same mountain. To say that grossly simplifies what's going on and insults everybody else because everybody defines the mountain differently. Christianity defines the mountain as salvation from our sin. We all need it. No one's so bad they can't have it. No one's so good they don't, they, they don't need to receive it. But, uh, yeah, uh, 
it's amazing how uh, we've got these phases of American history. First phase, Christianity's ideal, whether you believe it or not. Uh, number two, religions is a good thing, and if you want to believe in Christianity, that's great. And now we've got the third phase. What is it? Religion is inherently evil, and Christianity is the worst. And Really? It seems to me like we, you know, you don't see a lot of Methodist suicide bombers, and when they give somebody an award for putting a crucifix upside down in a jar of urine, they call that a work of art. But and we were very offended at, by that. But did you see any bombs going off at the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art? Did you see any suicide bombers trying to kill the artiste? You don't see that. Uh, but for some reason, they feel like. Uh, People like us who think that people with boys' parts ought to go to boys' restrooms and people with girls' parts ought to go to girls' restroom in public, uh, that we're seen as backward, repressive, and evil. Strange. We went from being the ideal to being the best of many and all religions good for you to being really something that needs to be repressed and vilified and marginalized, and it's just a strange thing. So you're going to see this more and more. The good news is a gross nuisance to many in the world, including our culture. You don't have to go to Bangladesh to find find out about that. Now, verse 22, I, I read it before, but it uh, didn't, didn't hurt to repeat it. Uh, here's Paul's kind of immediate general order. Go, get up now, get quickly, get out of Jerusalem, like he said in verse 18. Get up and go. I'm going to send you far away to the Gentiles. And what happens there, Nancy, between here and now? He goes on three missionary journeys. He goes far and wide to the Gentiles. So that's one of those prophecies that gets fulfilled pretty quickly, just the space of a couple of years, right? Now look at verse 23 through 29. We're going to see the colonel, the commanding officer, has Paul removed from the scene uh, to protect him, but really to arrest him, uh, and then to prep him for questioning. Look at verse 23. And as they were crying out, the crowd... Now, the crowd hasn't even allowed him to mention Jesus by name. All he's done is talk about his background, uh, his conversion, and mention, you know, that he's been involved uh, with uh, um, some violent acts against Christians. Uh, and they listened to him up that statement, and then they raised their voice, voices and said, Away with such a fellow, for such a person's not... Allowed to live. I kind of skipped up there, messed up there. Look at verse 22. And I, I love numbers. So I know, Chris, I know you love numbers too. Anytime you've got like 22, 22, that's got to be important, right? Doesn't it have to be important? It's all important. It's all inspired. It's all good. But the crowd rejects Paul's message without hearing him out. They don't, they don't know what he's going to say. I, I've made it my best educated guess. And, you know, after the first million years of knowing Paul in heaven, I'm going to say, what were you going to say if they had not so rudely interrupted you? And I think he's going to say something like, and I was just going to show them how the Old Testament is a path, glide path directly to Christ. But they didn't let me get it out, did they? So in the fallen world, some of the greatest people are seen as gross people. Hebrews talks about, Hebrews 11 talks about all these amazing miracles does in certain point acts for certain biblical heroes. But at the end of the chapter, he says, but others were hunted down, sawed in two, killed. And he says, people of whom the world was not worthy. And he, he didn't even mention them by name. It's either too many or he didn't know them by name, but he just knows it happened. Thousands and millions of Christians have been martyred for the faith, and we don't know what their names are. I know there are concentration camps in uh, North Korea right now 
They're as bad as anything that happened during the Holocaust, and it's mainly Christians that are in those camps. If that was, uh, you know, left-handed, uh, androgynous people who want to go in the wrong bathroom, you know what? We'd probably have a massive UN, you know, uh, obligation to do something about it, but it's just Christians, so it's no big deal. Now we get to verse 23, where the commanding officer, uh, protects him, arrests him, and really plans to uh, prepare him for questioning because this Roman army officer has to fill out a report. So he's got to, you know how that works? you got to fill out the paperwork. So they listened to him up to that point, and they raised their voices and said, hey, take this guy out of here. Kill him. He doesn't deserve to live. We don't want him around anymore. Verse 23. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and throwing dust in the air, just uh, ex- expressing in a Near Eastern, ancient Near Eastern kind of way their anger and the revulsion of what Paul's saying. The commander, the colonel, ordered him, Paul, to be brought into the barracks, the Roman barracks up the steps all the way, stating he should not, stating he should be examined by scourging, 39 lashes which could kill you, so that he, the commander, might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. But when they stretched him, Paul, out, Paul said to the centurion, the the, the uh, sergeant major, who was actually dealing with the attachment of the group that was going to scourge him, uh, that is Paul, and he looks at him, Paul says, hey, is it is it legal for you guys to whip uh, uh, an uncharged Roman citizen? I mean, you could get in big trouble uh, for doing stuff like that. Now, you got the big Roman Empire, right, Trevor? But only a small group of people within that huge number of folks were actually formal, full Roman citizens. And you... If you were born in Rome, if you're born of aristocracy, you could actually buy it. Today we'd call bribe for it. Or if you were a Gentile or a Jew who did important work for the empire, you'd be given, you could be given citizenship and it was big. Lots of privileges. Uh, and Paul, as he's going to explain, he's a Roman citizen. And that's a good thing. Uh, in fact, he was, we'll see more about it in a moment. But yeah, he's just saying, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do this. You know, Paul knew his rights. And he spoke up so that he could enjoy those rights, and Christians need to do that. And when you figure out what the rights are, uh, it says Congress should make no law respecting an establishment of religion nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Then it goes on with freedom of, the, of speech and freedom of the press. But the first freedom is freedom not from religion, but freedom of religion. And the subject of the statement there is Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. That's called the establishment. Establishment clause, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's called the free exercise clause. So uh, we need to kind of know that uh, when we take John three sixteen into the world. When we take John three sixteen into the world, you better know the First Amendment so you can quote it uh, before it totally gets redefined, which it probably will. But Paul knew his rights, and he's a citizen, and he can't be scourged like this. And this could even kill him. So he thought it'd be a good idea uh, to say, "Hey, uh, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who's a Roman, Roman citizen, and uncondemned? I'm, I'm not guilty of anything legally yet. You haven't proven anything. Haven't gone through the procedure. When the centurion, the sergeant, heard this, he went to the colonel who gave the order to flog him and told the commander, uh, what are you about to do? Notice the sergeant blames it on the guy giving the orders, which is you know, correct. You go up the chain of command. This man's a Roman citizen. I mean, we could be killed for flogging a Roman citizen. The entire detachment could, you know. So that's not good. And the commander answered, excuse me, verse 27. The commander came to Paul and said, tell me, are you really a Roman citizen? Now, you know, you think, well, why don't they just kind of scan his card, you know, and see, look through the database. But 
they had ways of finding out. And in fact, uh, just because this could be a, a game changer for you, uh, Paul probably had some form that validated it along with his passport. You know, he probably didn't have a passport, but he probably had something like that. And even if he didn't have it on him, we're going to find out next week that Paul's sister and nephew lived in Jerusalem. So they could probably find the necessary paperwork if he needed to prove it. But in general, you wouldn't say you, you were a citizen because if they found out you weren't, that'd be Samaria, you know, immediate execution. So he's not going to, nobody's going to probably say that in most cases. But, uh, Paul says, yeah, I am. And look what he says. Uh, the commander, verse 28 says, you know, I got that status through a large sum of money. Today we call it a bribe. Paul said, I was actually born a citizen. My dad and or mom or both did something so beneficial to the Roman Empire, probably let some of the powers that be know about some Jewish zealots who wanted to knife people, which is not a nice thing to do and shouldn't be supported by any good Jew or Christian. Uh, uh, and so he was born uh, uh, a citizen. So he's actually in a higher status than even this Roman, technically, than this Roman commander he's talking with. So he said, I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, uh, those who were about to examine him Prepare him for questioning by taking his back off. Immediately let go of him, like he's kryptonite. We don't want to have anything to do with him. We don't, we didn't, we didn't mean it, you know? And the commander also was afraid when he found out Paul was a Roman because he had put him in chains in the first place. Uh, so it's interesting the way that the tables turn and Paul knows his rights under the law and just insists they be respected. In this case, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do this. And so some people say, if you trust God enough, you don't need to do stuff like that. You trust God, you pray for the trip, and you buckle your seatbelt, right? You trust God, have your passport, and whatever papers can save your life if you're going to North Korea or someplace, and take the paperwork with you. Now, it's interesting, as any good bureaucrat, uh, the officer punched Paul out of the way because he didn't want to have to deal with this guy anymore. Uh, look at verse 30. So on the next day, Paul, I think, had a nice, relaxing uh, night without chains on, with his back still intact, recovering from being beaten up, which is one reason some scholars suggest, hey, we actually have a doctor kind of at Paul's disposal at this point. Anybody remember who I'm talking about? Luke, the doctor, accompanied Paul to Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary trip. So he's in Jerusalem. He's a doctor. Now that they're trying to make up with Paul and be nice because they almost did something the soldiers that could have resulted in them being killed, they're tre- treating him very nicely, giving him the best cell, the VIP cell, and probably allowing his friend Luke to come in and you know, kind of help his wounds. We, that's a, that'd be a good question to ask Luke in heaven the first couple of days you, you see him. Uh, were you able to access Paul and help him at all? But the next day, wishing to know for certain why Paul had been accused by the Jews, because the centurion's job is to figure this out, get the paperwork right, and not let there be any more riots. He released him from his custody and ordered the chief priest and all of the council, we call that the Sanhedrin, to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. Uh, the Sanhedrin was a group of 70 men plus the high priest. He led it. Uh, the Sanhedrin was the Jewish Supreme Court. It had its own police force. And in fact, uh, who arrests Jesus on the Mount of uh, Olives at Gethsemane? the Sanhedrins, the temple police they're called, but the Sanhedrins police. Now, we actually know, based on some historical facts and archaeology, that they actually, the Sanhedrin had a formal meeting place 
that's part of the wall of the first temple. So we know exactly where this meeting would have taken place. And again, if you, this is our, you know, artist representation. Here's the Temple Mount. Here's the temple. There's east, west, south, north. Uh, there's the Antonia Fortress. But uh, guess what? They would have met right there. This is, and, and we know that the uh, Sanhedrin was set up with enough seats for 70 people plus the chief priest in the middle in a big semicircle. And then the accused are standing there. And uh, I wish my speech class was here because uh, they have to give short five-minute speeches to 24 people who are pulling for them, their students, and me right there who's judging them, you know. <laughs> and so that's intimidating. I mean, you've been there, but this is even worse because you've got more people. And, and none of these people are really favorably disposed to Paul at the time, right? So you know that. Uh, look at uh, verses 1 through 6 now. But Paul, looking intently at the council, at the 70 plus one members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And I'm sure he's going to say, and let me explain how Jesus Christ climaxes Judaism. But again, he's kind of cut short. The high priest Ananias, not the guy in Damascus, but this guy, and not Annas, who's mentioned as a high priest, former high priest in the Gospels during the... Uh, trials of Jesus, uh, the reigning high priest Annas commanding those standing before him, that would be the temple police, the bailiffs, as it were, to strike him on the mouth. Now, what has he said to offend them? He said, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God after this day. Boom. That's enough for them to start beating Paul up because they obviously know where he's headed, right? Now, here's what you might not know that was, to me, very interesting. This... Uh, this high priest, Annas, according to historical background information, had been the high priest for 10 years at this point in June of 57. He gets removed the next year for gross corruption, including financial malfeasance. This guy is corrupt. Are some religious leaders corrupt? Do some people get in religion and make lots of money? That was James and my plan, too. It's not working. We're not making a lot of money. We're not famous yet. But that was the plan. Just say, oh, no, right? But yeah, this guy's corrupt. God knows. I think Paul's probably heard some of the rumors, but nobody knows yet. Next year, they're all going to find out. It's going to be a scandal. But right now, he won't even let Paul speak before he has some thugs, tells the thugs to start beating him up. And at this point, Paul kind of calls a spade a spade. Then Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Got cracks in it, but we're going to paint over it and you won't be able to see him. You look great, but I know exactly what your deal is. And uh, he said, you're gonna be, you, you, you're, God's going to strike you. Do you sit to try me according to the law and then in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, how dare you revile God's priests? Now, he's this, this, this uh, sitting high priest, and he's literally sitting right there in front of Paul at that point. Uh, people take this next step statement a couple different ways. I'll tell you what I think it means. And Paul said, I wasn't aware, brethren, that he was a legitimate high priest. Okay, this guy is totally a sham. And uh, that's the rumor on the street, and it turns out to be confirmed later. I didn't realize he was a legitimate high priest, for it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. This guy's a sham, uh, and uh, you need to know that. But then, look what happens now, verse 6. But perceiving Paul, that one part of the group that, 
makes up the Sanhedrin were Sadducees, that particular group in Judaism, and the other were Pharisees, Paul began crying out to the council, Brethren, I'm a Pharisee. So he's got half of them with him now. A son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. So he's just going to fast track it because he realizes he doesn't have a lot of time necessarily with this group. Look what happens in verse 7. Schism within the Sanhedrin forces the Romans to take custody of Paul again. I think the, I think the Roman centurion or, or the uh, colonel here would have been happy to say, hey, he's done nothing wrong that offends me. We'll let the Jewish Supreme Court religious people decide what to do with him and, and that's fine. But uh, they got to do it by the book. So when Paul said, I'm standing up here as a Pharisee telling you the resurrection is true, and I'm going to tell you that because I know Christ is resurrected, there occurred such a dissension, uh, an argument up to including physical violence between the Pharisees and the Sadducees who made up Sanhedrin, the assembly's divided. But the Sadducees say there is no resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. They don't believe in life after death. Nor an angel, nor a spirit. It's all just a materialistic world. Uh, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there occurred such a great uproar, catalyzed by this theological point. Is the resurrection even a possibility or not? Is there life after death or not? Kind of thing. That some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, we find nothing wrong with him so far. Now, he doesn't say we find nothing wrong with him categorically. They mean, up to this point, we're fine with him. Now, if he got to the punchline, they'd all be mad at him about Jesus, right, Lori? But he's, all he said is, I'm going to try for the resurrection. You're not, you're not trying to persecute me. You're really persecuting the truth of the gospel, Jesus Christ. And they say, hey, but we're fine with what he said up to now. Uh, what's, what's the problem? So there's great dissension and, um, one of the Pharise- some of the Pharisaical folks said, hey, we find nothing wrong with him. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. Maybe he knows what he's talking about. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn into pieces by them. Now let me suggest that dissension in verse 7 is a very inadequate translation. Dissension just sounds like a polite verbal disagreement. This is a knock-down, drag-out fight. you got these guys with long beards, the robes, fists are flying, yarmulkes are flying, you know. Anything anything you can find that's Jewish and and hard, they're going to hit each other with, you know. And uh, the Roman commander is afraid that they're actually going to hurt his his prisoner here. They're going to actually uh, tear Paul into pieces. How's that going to happen? You know what? The the Sadducees want to kill him. The Pharisees want to hold on to him, so they're kind of pulling him. He he walked in to this meeting. He was only 5'4". At the end of this meeting, he was 6'2". That's what happened. It doesn't mention that, but, you know, you can check it out later. Yeah, so there's such a great dissension. The commander's afraid Paul's going to be torn up and killed. So he ordered his troops, his soldiers who were with him, uh, in the, just a handful of them in, the, in that session, to go down, take Paul away from him, uh, by, from them by force, and bring him back into the barracks. So we're going back to where we started. They were on their way to the barracks when Paul said, kind of talk. Now, fast forward a couple of days, we're back going to the barracks. Verse 11, but on the night, immediately following all this, and you know what? In the aftermath of really high intensity and high emotions, you, you tend to hit a little bit of a wall. Uh, the Lord, sometimes you just need a little extra encouragement, and here Paul got it in spades. The Lord stood at his side and said, take courage, cheer up, boy, as you have solemnly witnessed 
to my cause at Jerusalem, to the big dogs as best you could. They, they, you, they, you told them everything you could. It wasn't much, but it was a start. You're also going to witness for me in Jerusalem. Boom. And I want you to see this as we close. You know, you, you read about these trials and tribulations. Uh, and uh, when you look at the whole story, though, here we've read, what we've just seen, Trevor, is Paul getting beat up. And yet, at the same time, in the same circumstances, Paul stays what? He gets beat up. He gets put down. He's not allowed to even finish his messages. But he's still upbeat. Now, how or why could he do that? I think he knows how much he's worth. What's something really worth in the free market? What somebody's willing to pay for it? Right, gay? That's how much God loves you. That's what God did for you. That's what God did for Paul. Uh, on the cross, hanging between heaven and earth, Christ died for our sins, and he rose again. And I think the principle is, even in the worst of circumstances, we can keep the faith by knowing, you got to know, and resting in the person, program, and provision of Jesus. Uh, this will not eliminate the stages of grief, but it gives you a much better and larger context to work through the stages of grief. As I've often said, A, there are some scars that you can suffer on earth that are so horrific, they're not going to get healed this side of heaven over and out, no matter how much faith you got. And, um, yeah, that's, that's enough for right now. But here's the thing. You look at that cross, and I think Paul thought about the cross against as the background against everything that happened to him when he wanted to be whiny and, and doubtful. He kind of looked at that. But a dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. Right, Bobby? The resurrected one, the resurrected Savior, is the only one who can. And so uh, I'm just going to end there. You, you enter the Christian life by faith in the crucified, risen Christ, and then you live the Christian life by walking with him and living the one who died for you. So when things hit you, fair or unfair, expected or unexpected, uh, painful or just irritations, you got to put that in a larger context. And the big miracle of this passage is Paul was beat up, but he remained upbeat. What's beating you up in your life today? Is it adjusting to life without Duncan? For the Shonemeyers? Is it uh, the Wanzers not wanting to have to admit that Eric beat them when they were running and he was walking? Uh, or is it something horrific? Is it a medical issue or a financial issue? Or Rodina has just lost her beloved husband, her other half. We might say other two-thirds. You know, um, And I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying you're not going to hurt, but uh, Paul kept the faith by putting all the pain and all the painful uh, things that he was dealing with in a much larger context. I mean, we got an out-of-this-world uh, world to look forward to, and that should motivate us to hang in there and now. If you've not trusted Christ as your Savior, the Scripture will convict you of your sin. You got it. You've broken the rules. Uh, your need for righteousness, you can't crank that out. And your Savior, you can trust in Him and receive the gift of eternal life. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we read about Paul and we're kind of detached. It's kind of words on a page and we kind of know he gets jostled on his way to, to, to Rome. We've heard the story. But help us uh, as we as the Spirit illumines the text to put us more and more in Paul's shoes and kind of see the things He's going through from his perspective so we can, in turn, 
look at our circumstances around us in the same way he looked at his and learned some good lessons there. Uh, help us to remember you've got purposes for even the horrific things that happen. You permit them, you don't promote them, you're not responsible for them, but you have such an amazing plan. Even the black pieces of the mosaic fit with all the others to make a beautiful picture. And sometimes we can only see a small part of the picture. Sometimes we're crying so hard we can't see any of the picture. But train us to rest in you and to um, put our worries uh, in a place we don't worship them and put our pain and our fear in your hands that you might strengthen us and help us. Lord, I also pray for uh, not just the believers here who are, are dealing with some issues that are really tough and the need to rest in the in the love of Jesus. But I pray for anyone here this morning who's not trusted in him. Open their hearts to see and believe and say, Lord Jesus, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I've broken uh, your rules. broke my own rules when I really get out of, out of hand. I break my own rules, much less yours. I can't fix it. You can. I want you to. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. I trust in him alone. I receive him as my Savior. I thank you for each one who's here and pray that you would do... Uh, Something significant with this truth in each one of our lives this week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.